Hello, and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. It's episode 64, Exploring Our Souls of Shame, part one. Welcome and Happy New Year. Yep, Happy New Year. It's exciting. We're in 22K19. (laughs) Again, I don't think the kids say that anymore, but I'm going to keep bringing it in. Well, the kids don't sing Old Lang Syne anymore either, but we (laughs) still keep playing it. We sure do. Thanks, Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) He keeps bringing it back. Uh, My name is Lori Creek, and we are coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I am here with licensed therapist and Argyle expert. Come on down, Matt Creek. Hello. (laughs) And we also have our producer and the most professional voice among us, (laughs) producer Steve. Welcome 2019. Yeah, yeah. And we have a two-parter for you today. Well, not necessarily today. It's going to be today and then also next week. And we're going to be exploring the epidemic of shame. And Matt and I, just since when we launched Hole in My Heart Ministries, which Matt has his own practice now, uh, but when we were walking with people wrestling with sexual brokenness, it was pretty early on that we recognized that sexuality or gender was not our biggest issues, even though it feels like it is. Uh, It's shame. And people wear it kind of like a wet blanket. And it seems like one we can't remove. Like, I just always have to be feeling this disgusting way. But we can remove it, God helping us, and with the guidance of an expert and the author of one of our most recommended books of the last year mm-hmm. is Dr. Mm-hmm. Kurt Thompson. Kurt, welcome. Thanks, Laurie, and thanks to Steve and Matt, too. Uh, just really a joy to be with you all today. We feel the exact same way, yep. maybe even more. <laughs> um, and you are calling us from Arlington, Virginia. Um, that's mm-hmm. right. You're coming from your office? Right. Mm-hmm. I you am. You in my s- house. Any yep. snow on the ground there? Not yet. We're supposed to get some in a couple of days. And so naturally here in Virginia, um, everyone is already rushing to take the milk and water and bread <laughs> off the shelves because heaven forbid we should be invaded by an army because, you know, I mean, if there's snow coming, it's almost as bad. (laughs) That's hilarious. Okay. See, again, it's just the haughtiness of Michiganders where we are. We're just like, snow. (laughs) (laughs) I I know. (laughs) Seriously, it's terrible. I I grew up in Ohio, and uh, I feel like I'm in a foreign land at times here. Oh, I'm sure. Do you do the same sort of try not to scoff, the scoffy shaminess? How is that going? Yeah. No, I don't don't try not to. I (laughs) I do it liberally. Oh, man. We're going to get along well. Dr. Thompson, we are so excited to have you here. And just for those of you who don't know the book to which we are referring, it is called The Soul of Shame. Therefore, the uh, the title of this podcast is we're looking inside of them. But in addition to writing this incredible book, uh, Dr. Thompson, which he invited us to call us Kurt, Kurt is a board certified psychiatrist and the founder of the Center for Being Known, which I just want to learn more about that. But it's an organization that develops resources to educate and train leaders on the intersection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation. Matt, I feel like you would love that really hard and would like to just go nerd out for several probably several whiles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How many months yeah. do I get a sabbatical in order um, to study? Yes, right. With the third baby on the way. That sounds great, honey. Um, he is also the author of Anatomy of the Soul. Uh, and you and your wife, Phyllis, uh, she's a licensed clinical social worker and you're the parents of two children. So thanks again. We're yeah. so excited to have you. And before... Pleasure. Before we dive in uh, to your book and into this, this um, navigating this our souls of shame, which is maybe sad to say, but I'm I'm willing to dive there. We're gonna look at the question of the week from last week, which is if you have one, 
What's your word for 2019? What's like the word or theme you sense God calling you to look into for this next year's season, if you do that? So, Kurt, you're welcome to join us. Do you have a word for the year or a theme? Do you even do that? Uh, no, I don't. Probably because I'm um, uh, too risk averse to not live into it and, to, <laughs> and be too ashamed of it by probably, you know, September. So it's just yeah. easier to not pick a word. But mm. I, I think if I were to pick a word, adventure comes mm. to mind. It gets it, it in many respects, it gets overused. But mm. I'm um, I'm at a place uh, vocationally uh, and in my work life and so forth where I'm uh, having to make some decisions about next steps. And uh, I think an, an adventure is um, a proper way to think about that, mm. uh, despite the fact that I'm 56 and one thinks that you know, you begin adventures perhaps earlier than that, but I've, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, becoming familiar with lots of people who have begun adventures in you know, my age or later. And uh, so that's that's probably a word that I would use. I like it. I, I'll, I'll affirm that. <laughs> that sounds great to me. I like it when people are courageous and lean in just what whatever age. Yeah, I, uh, I I also affirm that in the immortal words of the Disney movie Up, adventure is out there. Yeah, that's that's not something to be ashamed of. I love Disney movies. <laughs> you know? And that movie uh, gets you crying. That, in about oh, four man, seconds. in four seconds, you are on the floor bawling unless you're <laughs> under the age of 18. Yeah. Um, my word probably for next year is, is, as I've been thinking about it, is is either worship or silence, which which mm. seems like it's two different things because you think worship is like singing and, and exuberance and silence is not. Um, but but those are kind of the words that have come to mind. Mm. And and I think most of the heart of that is just to, to be able to, I guess, to draw close to, to God, both in the, the joy and in the stillness. Mm. Um, and so with that, I, I also kind of was drawn to Melissa's response on the question on Facebook where she said that the ones that she's working with right now, the words she's thinking of are hospitality, rest, or stillness. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. Okay, so um, I was thinking, you know, my word in 2018 was discipleship. And I've been thinking, Lord, is that going to continue? And uh, I had something uh, just kind of confirm that a couple weeks ago, a conversation with my 17-year-old son who was reading Matthew 10, uh, his directions to his disciples who he was mm -hmm. sending out. And I was like, okay. Um, and then when we uh, talked to our last guest about the disciplines, it was kind of like, okay, it's a different angle. In 2018, I felt like it was more discipling others, being a part of someone else's discipleship. And mm -hmm. this, I feel like, is more attending to my own and emphasizing the spiritual disciplines. So anyway, I'm sticking with discipleship, but it's got a little bit of a, a different flavor for I like myself. Yeah. I really like Very it. Very cool. And Faye kind of felt the same way. She, uh, on our Facebook page, she said, I'm thinking I'm keeping finish from this year. It's propelled me to keep going, to continue the fight, to work on me, to work on projects, and to not stop when they get hard or boring. I have more to accomplish, more to finish. Yeah. So Faye's keeping the same word, and I feel like I am too. Yeah, my word for the year was um, blessed. And we talked a little bit about that when we did our little our blur between Christmas and New Year's. Um, and so this year, just as I've been praying, I've been sensing this for months, like, okay, your word for next year is growth. And I 
am wondering if it's just growth because I'm just going to keep getting larger and larger around <laughs> the midsection. So maybe it's just very literal growth. Uh, I'm hoping again, like last year, I'm very resistant to this like theme or these words because I just don't like fitting in boxes and I don't, you know, but um, growth implies pain. Mm. So... I don't know about that. Growing pains around my midsection and growing pains in our, I don't know, but I'm just curious to see what God wants to do with that. And Carly just said the word hope. And so I just liked how it was just like, this is the word. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of how I feel. And I don't really get it yet. And we'll just see how God does it. Um, but thanks for, for diving there, guys. It's time for us to go to Island. And this is the time of the show for those of you who perhaps are new 2019 listeners. Goofball Island, I've heard that phrase before. Where is it? And you're like, yep, it's from another Disney Pixar movie, mm -hmm. Inside Out. And it's uh, just one of the islands of, is it memory? Is it? Um, islands of personality. Riley's a personality, personality of Riley. Yeah. And so it's just how we have all have these different personality traits and these pivotal kind of core memories inside of us. And for her, one of hers is goofiness. And we intentionally place Goofball Island, as we affectionately call it and stole it from this movie, from Inside Out, um, because we can get too serious when we talk about things like shame and sexuality, etc. And so um, this is a time where we take a vacation from our problems. So... The vehicle we're taking there is a fifth wheel. I love that vehicle now, and we've taken a few times now, and it's getting cozy here. Uh, and the game we're playing is Fast Five. I've called this game several different names, and I can never remember which one I picked from the last time. Uh, but... Kurt, we are going to ask you a series of questions from age zero to age 20, and we're just going to do every five years and just ask you a question about every five years of your life, just to get to know you a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, but so where were you born? So starting with age zero, and are there any interesting facts about like your actual birthday, or is there like a crazy birth story, or is it just this is where I was born and the end? Uh, you know, I, I was born in Wheeling, West Virginia, right across the river, practically from where I actually, from where I grew up in Ohio. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I, I suppose one interesting thing, at least for me, uh, that continues to play itself out in my life is that I was born to parents. My mom was 44. My dad was 45. Hmm. Uh, I had brothers who were 18, 16 and 11 years of age. Oh, wow. And so my 18-year-old brother went off to college, and the next week I came to the world. <laughs> and uh, that uh, reality set in motion a whole panoply of different things that have continued to shape my life. So that's, uh, that's probably the, the most interesting thing that I um, can think about. You know, yeah. most of the time, Laurie, if I understand that you're – do I understand correctly that you're with child? I am. Number three, our third oldest. Yeah. So, yep. Well, and most of the time, you know, most folks are, um, you know, uh, when when they discover that, you know, someone is a family is pregnant, they're excited for that. Uh, that wasn't necessarily the case for me in 1962. Aww. If you're 44 and you're pregnant, yeah, you know, people are wondering like, what the heck were you doing? Right. Well, okay, they know what you were doing. <laughs> but I mean, what like why? Like, what what, what why? were you thinking? Yeah, and so forth and so on. Because uh, at that time, you know, you can get pretty, you get pretty anxious if you're mm -hmm. 44 and pregnant because yeah. that wasn't mm -hmm. a very common thing. So yeah. that's, uh, I, I can stop with that, but that would be um, what was, at least for me, what would be noteworthy about my birth. That is noteworthy. Mm. That makes a lot of sense because that family dynamic is different than, you know, say our home. So this baby will be born into, I'm younger than 44 and then, <laughs> but has four and two-year-old siblings. And so yeah. it'll be very different. Yeah. 
All right. So if we fast forward to age five, what was your greatest fear then? So I, I had this, this, this vivid memory. I, I went to a, grew up in a very small town where the elementary and middle and high schools were all in the same building, if you can imagine. Mm. Wow. And um, so I would go to school to kindergarten and first grade with my, uh, my, the brother to whom I was closest in age, and he would, he would drive to school and he would take me and I would walk in and um, I, would, I, I had this memory of being really self-conscious, like walking in and my, my brother was kind of a well-known personality in, in the high school and there would be all these people, especially girls, hmm. who would say hello to him and because I'm this little brother of his, they would say hello to me and I was, I was terrified oh. of like high school girls talking to me. All I could do, remember, putting my head down, watching my feet, getting to my kindergarten class about as fast as I could without having to talk to the other gender. I like they were like completely foreign territory. Oh. So uh, my, that's makes yeah, a lot of this sense. story just gets better and better as we go <laughs> yeah. along. Like, uh, it wasn't all bad, I promise. Well, we'll see, we'll yeah. see, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> but, I mean, I love it. I'm like, let's get deep. Let's cry together. <laughs> so I like it. Um who did you most want to be like when when you grew up when you were age ten? You know, that's a great question. And I don't know, um, I, at, at age 10, I, I don't know that I was thinking so much about the future. Um, it's funny, my, my wife and I have recently uh, seen the movie First Man. Mm-hmm. And it came out just before Christmas. And, um, uh, you know, this whole notion of Neil Armstrong, I was about, you know, I was, I was a little just under 10 when, um, you know, in 69, when... Uh, the lunar landing happened. And I remember for a long time, not necessarily wanting to be Neil Armstrong, but being completely fascinated with that kind of life. So Mm. um, I think I'll go with that answer. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys do most like little boys? And I did, I had some too, but it seems like boys stereotypically really did love space exploration and that idea. Did you guys both have that same? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I was younger, um, but so I caught the very tail end of the like Apollo yeah. uh, program. Um, but yeah, I mean, like every kid in elementary school really? was, oh yeah, talking about NASA. Yeah, NASA, <laughs> big yeah. deal. Yep, yep. You too, mm-hmm. Matt. I mean, well, I mean, I'm I definitely didn't catch the Apollo program or anything. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, there's always been just this idea that space is the kind of the last place where there's actual like discovery that can happen. And now I know like most of the islands and stuff on this planet have been mapped out. There's nothing new. Right. Yeah. You know, but out there, there is There's a lot of stuff we've never seen before. That's right. <laughs> I'm waiting for some sort of star Wars quote or something. I'm waiting. Mm. No. Mm. Then, okay. Mm. All right. That, that would have yeah. gone more akin to star Trek. Oh you know, yeah. The final true. frontier. Yes. Type oh thing, yes. But, there yeah. it is. You know, I won't go there. All right. Age 15. What was your greatest struggle? Okay, now I'm realizing I actually am asking like sad and hard things. So it's not you, Kurt. It's me. <laughs> it's me. So. It, it, it's okay. I've got my prescription pad ready and waiting to go. <laughs> uh, so good. Very good. I, uh, you know, it's uh, I in the, in probably in the most significant way came to Jesus when I was 13, and when I was uh, and and within six months of that was having what was my first uh, of a long list of existential crises, hmm. and um, and and that didn't really let up until I was probably sometime after college, 
And so when I was 15, I was probably just kind of in the thick of that hmm. whole um, series of kind of anxiety-provoking questions of, you know, can you believe the gospel? Were these, did these events really happen? And hmm. so forth and so on. And, you know, uh, underneath all that, of course, without me really being aware of it, underneath all that was this, uh, this sense, this, this terror of being wrong, which is what shame is all about. Mm-hmm. It's really about this sense of there's something wrong with me. I don't know enough. Haven't thought through things enough. And, you know, things that no 13 to 15 year old should be troubled with. But right. um, mm-hmm. there I was. And, um, and you know, there's, there's more to that story that's all related back to some of the things that I've already mentioned. Yeah, makes sense. Between temperament and family dynamics and so forth and so on. Absolutely. So, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So then if we move it to the last, well, not last part of your life, but just the last series of these questions. Uh, so now you're a board certified psychiatrist. I'll, I'm going to call you a shame expert. I don't know if you wear that label. Um, yes. But at 20, where were you at in that that trajectory? Well, I think um, at that, I was, you know, I was an undergrad at that point. And uh, in that trajectory, one of the things that had begun to happen when, when I went to college, I went to a small evangelical Quaker school in Ohio. And uh, there I, uh, you know, dis- uh, developed friendships and especially um, had two or three relationships with professors that were, uh, and, and a pastor that were my first real foray into what it feels like to be in the presence of somebody who asks you questions about your life and it feels like it really matters. Hmm. And, you know, no matter how long or how hard those questions were, how often they were banging around in your head. These were people who continued to, to be interested in welcoming you into their presence. And, you know, you, with all of your questions that you, you were sure, of course, at some point people were going to grow impatient with you and Mm -hmm. tired of your asking these things and, Mm. and tired of your not having figured stuff out. Uh, these were people who didn't tire of that. And so, uh, along with my, um, kind of internal machinations that never seemed to leave me alone for very long. Um, college was one of the first places, not the only place, but one of the first places where I, um, where, where God found me, I say, with, you know, with a, a number of different relationships that have uh, remained to this day that have, you know, kept me from uh, quite literally losing my mind. So it's, mm. uh, it's, it's, it was a real time of um, grace in my life. College is such an important season, like not just for like declaring your major, but like just all those important relationships and people who actually believe you and look you mm-hmm. in the eye and treat you like an adult and, and a, like a person who matters. It is, mm-hmm. I don't know, all those profs listening. I don't know how many are listening, but mm-hmm. just, yeah, you really do matter. So speaking of mattering, we're going to move to the heart of the matter, and uh, we're going to really kind of cover, not cover, you guys just need to read the book, I'm just going to say that, (laughs) Uh, but we're going to dive into, um, I'm sure, more pieces of your own story, Kurt, but then to just some of the first half of this book and some of the problem of shame, some of the neurobiology, I don't know how to exactly say if it's neurobiology or just in the neurology of this conversation, and um, hopefully just watered down for those of us who are not neurologists um, and so that we can talk about it. But then to hopefully at the end of this episode and into the next one, we will be discussing some of how we can heal shame uh, so that we won't all be left just bathing in that wet blanket that some of us can carry around. 
but before we really do a hard look and deep dive, um, we ask every guest who comes here this double series of questions. But when was the gospel first good news? If the gospel is I'm more sinful than I believe and more loved than I can imagine, to paraphrase Tim Keller's definition, um, when was that gospel first good news for you? I know you alluded to age 13. But then two, because we don't all have just a past tense testimony, we still need that gospel daily. How is it still good news for you? Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's really, um, it's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm familiar with, with Tim, with Tim's, uh, quote. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I heard that and, um, and I, I, I I respect Tim Keller uh, as much as I respect anybody on the planet. And, um, uh, had the occasion one, one time to share the stage with him. And, um, but it's, it's striking to me that we even think in terms of the gospel uh, and order our language in the way that we do, where mm. we start by saying, I'm more sinful than I believe and more mm. loved than I can imagine. And um, I haven't had a chance to talk with Tim about this, but I would say that uh, even that phrase is one that I would invite us to turn around. Mm. Um, that the gospel, if it is good news, does not begin with, I'm more sinful than I believe. Yep. Mm. It begins with, in fact, we are more loved than we can imagine. Hmm. And it is in that space of being loved incessantly, relentlessly, that we become aware of just how sinful we are. I actually don't need God to tell me that I'm sinful. Like, I get it. Hmm. Shame would like me to pay a lot of attention to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To the degree that even as I'm trying to incorporate desperately the second half of the phrase that I'm loved more than I can imagine, shame is still kind of uh, in charge of the conversation, Hmm. which is why um, it's so difficult for us to kind of untangle from it because it, it does have a leading edge, even to the point where in a situation like this, where we want to name the gospel as good news, but even in our languages, it turns out that's not actually what we lead with. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I said, like, I, Jesus found me in a powerful way when I was 13 at a church camp. Yeah. And, uh, and it's only, even, even now, as in, in my sixth decade, and, you know, you, you continue to recognize that Jesus is continually saving you from more and more and more stuff at younger and younger times of your life that you didn't know you didn't know about. Hmm. And so, uh, again, the whole notion of the family in which I grew up, um, you know, it, uh, it, it sets a stage for me to be saved at 13 from things that I am not even aware of that I'm being saved from, including a narrative that, you know, for a whole range of reasons, a narrative that I uh, had incorporated into my own life that really worried that I was not okay. Hmm. Uh, that that would those those would be the words that I would use. Now, yeah. the 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 fundamental essence of it is actually preverbal. It's beyond language. It's uh, it's it's not something that language by itself can actually do much to overcome. Which is why it is that when we just say to people, "Well, you don't need to be ashamed of that," it's not very effective. Right. Um, you know, so I, I would say, you know, I was met powerfully at age 13 
But it's it's like I tell people, look, um, you know, there are historians who looked at the landing at D-Day in Normandy and said that the Germans knew that if the Allies took the beaches, the war was effectively over. Hmm. But the problem is, is that functionally it wasn't. Right. And in the same way that Good Friday and Easter is like landing on Normandy. Yeah. Uh, evil has no intention of going quietly into the night Mm -hmm. and uh, will continue to use shame as its primary henchman in, uh, you know, preventing, you know, preventing the victory from being won. And even, even though, you know, it knows its days are numbered. Yes. So that's a, that is a long winded answer to your question. I just realized. No wind. There is zero wind, only like beautiful content where we're all like tearing up with you and, it's just, it's beautiful. I'm like taking notes. I feel like just, okay, what do I say? How could I like just articulate this again in such a beautiful way? And I'm just going to have to quote you. Um, but then too, I'm writing down, let's adjust our definition of the gospel. Also, if you have Tim Keller's email address, get that from you. So I have some notes. I've got some notes. Um, no, but that's just, it's so beautiful. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's humbling. It's terrifying, right? Cause we're yeah. invited then to live into this life and, and leave shame behind. And it's really hard to do. Yeah. 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 So let's dive into shame by just asking what is, and you say in your book, there's a working definition of shame. So where are you at in said working definition of shame? What is one? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I was uh, thinking about this earlier today about how the Bible, for instance, uh, is the, the authors of the Bible are uh, in in the stories that they tell. Where I'm not speaking so much about the instructional literature of like the epistles, but the story literature of the Bible. Uh, you know, the writers are so good at doing what we say good movie producers do, which is that they show they don't tell. Yeah. And um, I think about this notion that the Bible does not give us a like an absolute, for instance, definition of sin or of shame or of guilt. And it's, it's not like a Webster's go-to for these things. It simply gives us, it gives us stories and it gives us, uh, you know, revelation about like how this affects us, how this is lived out, how this is uh, embodied in the human condition in the course of our lives as God is pursuing us. And I think the same thing, you know, exists with shame. I mean, we have, in, in some respects, we, we, you know, all of our listeners, like, I don't need to give us a definition. Like, we all get it. We know what it is when we sense it, when we feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, to to be more explicit, we would say that there are some work, you know, there's a working understanding neurobiologically about what happens. Mm. And we can talk a little bit about that. We could, we could say, for instance, that shame really is the sensed neurophysiologic awareness of what happens when our sympathetic drive system, which is our what I call our go mode, right? When we are actively engaged in anything that we are interested in pursuing. And that pursuit could be just the offering of a casual comment, uh, you know, at a dinner party. Or that thing could be the putting forth of an idea in a boardroom. Or that could Mm -hmm. be asking someone to marry us. That could be an infant who's going for the begonias. (laughs) We're in this go mode, which Dan Siegel and Alan Shore like to talk about 
as the accelerator of the brain, right? We are moving forward towards something, and it doesn't have to be aggressively so, but we have this accelerator that's part of a, the automobile metaphor. And at the same time, life also requires a way for us to break the engine, for us to slow the engine. Uh, we don't want the child to actually run into the street. Mm. We don't want to be in go mode to the degree that we go so hard and so fast that we come into literally oncoming traffic, whether really or metaphorically. Mm. We need a way to slow the engine. We need our parasympathetic system to be engaged, but an 18-month-old is not going to do that on their own. They need the parasympathetic system and their brain to be activated by the parent. And the parent will say, no, hmm. in some way, shape or form, we'll say no to the child. I don't want you to eat the begonias because I don't want you to die. So we're going to move the child. We may say, no, you may not have that, but we're going to move the child from the begonias to something else. Or we may say no to our teenager, or we may say no to our employee. It's important that we have a way for us to restrain our sympathetic system by engaging our parasympathetic system. And that's the breaking system of our brain. And this is necessary for us. We like to say, look, no is as an important element of God's love for us as is his yes. Hmm. There's no question that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, I, I tell people it would be lovely Look, if God doesn't want me to eat of that tree, then why don't you plant it 40 miles to the west? Look, we right. don't even have the wheel yet, right? right, right. I don't, I, and, and so that I can't get to it. But he puts his no in the very center hmm. of our relational and emotional life together in the Garden of Eden and says, you may not do this. We need no in order for us to flourish as much as we need yes. Hmm. But in order for that to be done effectively, in order for no to be activated effectively, this braking system, we also need, in the metaphor of a standard transmission automobile, we need a clutch. We need something that can help the engine adjust from the accelerator mode to the braking mode, and that clutch is the presence of an attuned relationship. Hmm. So when the infant is being told no when the newborn when when the when the toddler is being told no by the parent the no can be done gently or the no can be done with a loud voice because if i mean there are sometimes if our child literally is about to do something dangerous we shout across the room no hmm. strongly but we know that if you drive a standard transmission automobile you can slam on the brake but if you follow quickly enough with the clutch you don't lose the engine mm-hmm. You can say no to a child, but if you are quickly moving toward them in an attuned fashion, hmm. you help their parasympathetic system not overwhelm their brain, and so they learn to not do certain things. We learn to say no. We learn to self-regulate and restrain, but we do so effectively because it is in the restraint that we still maintain deep connection with another human being who is attuned to us. Hmm. Anytime the brake system is applied and no clutch is available, shame is what happens. Mm. And so, again, things as simple and as casual as we're speaking in a group and we offer a comment and nobody responds. We just kind of just keep going and nobody comes back and says, Laurie, wait, you said something earlier and we didn't get to you. Could you say that again? Mm. 
that sense of feeling ignored, look, that's not, you know, it, it's not catastrophic, it's not major, but the brain registers this as a neurophysiologic event, the fundamental nature of which is what we call shame. Mm -hmm. And that fundamental nature is the same thing that happens when someone is publicly humiliated. Right. It's the same thing. But we tell people that, you know, so, so this, this is the neurophysiology of shame, and it's not hard for us to see and feel and imagine this in significant catastrophic events, uh, bullying, um, sexual and physical abuse, some kind of public humiliation. The thing is, is that as far as our life is concerned, the vast majority of how these events actually occur uh, is in the privacy of our own minds dozens of times every day when we say to ourselves, I should have done this, I should have done that, I'm not good enough at this, I'm not good enough at that. And I mean, we all get it. We all have our, as I write about in the book, we all have our private shame attendants whose job it is to walk around and point out to us the myriad small details of life in which you just haven't done something well enough. Mm. And it's like these little micro moments of, that, that turn into a death of a thousand cuts. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. I've so, learned already so many things. Yeah. Okay, so, go ahead, so like, I mean, I really like the, the car analogy that you use, um, you know, be, because it's, it's very like tangible, very like kind of straightforward. Mm -hmm. And I know shame is a lot more convoluted than that. Um, you know, but just this idea that if we, I mean, no matter what our intent is when we're applying the break, you know, and I'm thinking as a parent to, to a child, you know, given that I have a, a four and a two year old, it's, it's something I have to say no at mm -hmm. certain mm -hmm. points throughout the day, you know, don't lick your sister's face, whatever. <laughs> and the floor. <laughs> or the floor, or, you know, whatever. Sorry, that's really funny. <laughs> well, it's it, not there, an there are uncommon. certain sentences that I'm just like, I never expected to have to say this. Don't but, pick up the poop. Yeah. But there it is. You know, but but having that that ability to to then move into the relationship, into the the continuance of the relationship, where mm -hmm. where this no is not all of a sudden shutting their engine down, and and I think that you beautifully describe that in your book when you talked about you know the whole uh, story of what happened in Eden when after the fruit was eaten and and God's response to to Adam and Eve wasn't oh what do you do. Like it, it was, it was a, Hey, where are you? Like a, a pursuit of a moving into the relationship when Adam and Eve, all they wanted to do was move away from it. All they wanted to do was, was retreat. And, right. Right. And yeah. So, yeah, 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 indeed. And I think that, um, part of our, part of our difficulty is, uh, we now live in a culture also where, um, the notion of restraint, the notion of being said, no, just being told no is difficult for us to hear because our imaginations have been, we only have experiences of being, or, or we have limited experiences such that our no is really confined to ones in which relationship is not connected to it. And mm -hmm. so uh, we find, you know, if, if someone tells us no, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a far more painful thing than it needs to be. And we have a hard time recognizing no uh, being as important to our mm -hmm. growth as the word yes. Yeah. Are you talking about because we're so disconnected because we're more online in and so when we say these sorts of no's it's it, it's abrupt whether or not it means to be abrupt? Well, I think uh at least my 
my, my sense of things, um, uh, I forget the author's name, the, the, the woman who wrote the book, The Blessing of a Skin Knee, mm. this, this notion that when we have some kind, I mean, it, it, when, when, we, when children um, first hear us say no, um, it's important to know that even in our um, being relationally connected to them, if I say, no, you may not have the begonias, uh, they don't, just because I'm connected doesn't suddenly mean like, oh my gosh, dad, thank you so much for taking me away from those beautiful flowers. I'm sure you have a much better idea for me. I'm so grateful. Like, no, that's not what, the, there is a certain distress mm-hmm. that comes when we put the brake on the system. This is not something that we enjoy. I don't really like this. I mean, she looked at the fruit of the tree and she saw that it was good for things, right? When we look at this thing at which I'm tempted, it's not like I'm tempted to things that I don't like. Hmm. We have to say no to things that we really enjoy. And so there is a certain, there there is a certain distress that emerges Mm -hmm. when no is applied but it is the relationship that mitigates that. It is the relationship that enables us to learn how to cope with the distress of no. And in so doing, we actually build resilience. We learn how to tolerate distress, mm. but we don't learn it just because I can white knuckle it and I can learn yes. how to take distress. I learn to re- I, I learn to respond to distress through the context of co-regulation with a relationship that is with me in that process. So to your point, Laurie, that in our disconnection and, you know, um, social media, not the least, is going to be a way in which we are becoming neurobiologically more and more disconnected from each other. Um, There's no question about that. Uh, In that state of disconnection, it becomes more difficult for us to tolerate no. Mm -hmm. Because they don't have the relational co-regulator available to me to help me know how to handle that. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so it gives shame. It gives shame a much greater, um, a, a much wider pathway to enter into and between relationships and literally to do its work even kind of neurobiologically within us. Which makes sense why all of us feel so much often more terrible after getting online than like, oh, but I got all these likes, but you think of all the likes you did not get or like exactly. it wasn't enough comments. It's never enough to satiate. But on what on your point, even just as you were starting to land the plane there with talking about social media, when you were just saying about how having these emotional regulators because of relationship, it empowers us to say no. And I'm like, that makes so much sense whenever I share my story or Matt, I think of yours or Steve, your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are empowered to say no to the things we desire most because of relationship both with God mm-hmm. primarily, mm-hmm. but then those who model him so well. So that's it's mm-hmm. just fleshing out even my own story more as you're mm-hmm. speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, Kirk, yeah. can, can yeah. you talk a little bit about the loop, as you called it in your book? Just what is the loop and, and why is that important to this whole shame conversation? Well, one of the things that we know that uh, the the neurophysiology of shame tends to do is it, it tends to be self reinforcing. So I I feel ashamed about something that I do, and the moment I even pause to consider that I am ashamed, my reflecting on it only strengthens the very neural network activity of the shame that I feel. So. I feel ashamed, and then I feel ashamed of feeling ashamed. Yeah. (laughs) 
And the notion that I would tell you about it yeah. only confirms that I couldn't tell you about it because thinking about telling you about it makes me feel even more ashamed. Yeah. Right. And so it does become this um, snowball mm -hmm. in, in, internally and in, not just within me, but also between me and you. Right. So we, get, do, we do get caught in this loop where in which we would say this is, uh, you know, some of the research on guilt and shame would suggest that when we feel the thing, when we sense and experience neurophysiologic and, rel and relationally, when we sense the thing that we call guilt, uh, one, of the, one of the first things that the, re that the research indicates that people will tend to do when they're in that space, uh, if they sense guilt in the context of relationship with someone that they generally trust, the first thing they tend to do is to turn toward that person in order to resolve the problem, make the relationship right, repent, ask for forgiveness, make, make up, do whatever they have to do. They will tend to turn toward the person that they've offended. The notion of shame, on the other hand, which takes place and emerges at a much earlier stage developmentally than does guilt. Wow. Uh, 15 to 18 months of age, kids can start to experience this. And whereas with guilt, uh, the thing that we call guilt doesn't really begin to emerge in kids, in mo for most kids, until they're somewhere between the ages of about four to six years of age. Um, because it requires more of the brain development to be in play, to offer to that child this, the experience of what we call guilt. Yeah. The difference is that when we feel shame, we only ever turn away from people. We don't go to people naturally when we feel ashamed because the very act of considering it only strengthens that loop. Mm. Which, again, all the more reason why the gospel makes such a huge difference, because like we are people who God has to come and find. We are not going to go find God. We're <laughs> only going to go find God on our terms, and we will leave our shame at the door as part of that. Mm. But that's, I, I, you know, that's why when I, when I read, you know, the, the gospel is such a powerful thing for me, because it is the one story, as opposed to all of the ancient stories about God. This is the story in which God is coming for us. Yep. We're not having to go the other direction. Mm. It's like he knew we had this shame problem <laughs> and, mm. and pursued us, which I'm hearing echoes of Tim Keller and what you're saying, because that's, that's some of what he says. This is the only story where, where God came down and came to mm -hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Which right. that whole, right. that whole notion of like, we, we are never going to want to share. We're, we're, our natural reaction is always going to be to hide, to isolate. Um, and, and I, I mean, this is kind of maybe a theological question, but is that why the Bible places such importance on confession? Well, again, I think uh, I, I think the Bible. I, 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 the short answer I would suggest is yes, and also why the Bible so beautifully doesn't explain all this. Hmm. It just it just shows us, and even when we get to the prescriptive texts of the epistles in the New Testament, therefore confess your sins to one mm -hmm. another. Um, it is, when we say confess your sins, it is a direct reflection of Genesis chapter three. Mm -hmm. God was trying to pursue the first couple in an engaged confessional moment, not in my view, not for the purpose of having them grovel, not for the purpose of having them come and admit, yes, we're horrible people because we've done this horrible thing, but because he really is genuinely looking for a relationship with us, even even when it is our tendency to run away from him, mm -hmm. he just never stops coming for us. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, and if shame is this self-reinforcing thing, being kind of trapped in our own mind, if we're operating in that shame loop, is, is really the, the worst place that we can be. If you can have this kind of, this trusted, attuned um, person to, to come, and yeah. it, it would almost help to stop that cycle. Right. And Matt, to your point, like the, the biblical notion and the theology behind confession uh, is so crucially important because that whole notion of confession being, I'm going to tell the truth, um, is more than just, I'm going to tell you about my sin. Mm -hmm. It is, I'm going to tell you the entire truth about my life, mm -hmm. everything about my life, including my experience of shame. And again, we, we folks who live, you know, at the tail end of modernity, uh, we talk about, you know, confession is this thing that we do, like we're, we're using words to give people information about facts about our sinful, broken selves. Yeah. The whole, the, the biggest part of why it is that confession is so powerful is not because I've simply transferred information from the privacy of my own head and life to the, you know, to you. The most powerful part of, of what happens in confession is I, as an embodied person, am going to offer to you the truth about my embodied life, hmm. including words. And as I do so, I am literally going to see what your response is. Long before you tell me and remind me that my sins are forgiven, mm -hmm. which is why, you know, why the priesthood of all believers is such a big deal. Like we need priests. Mm -hmm to remind us, not because we need priests to be a go-between theologically, but because we need embodied persons who can in our, you know, in right hemisphere to right hemisphere, nonverbal cue to nonverbal cue, say, Kurt, even in all this that you've done, I just can't tell you how glad I am that you're in the room. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what confession does. It puts mm -hmm. me in a space where in my embodied self, I see you in your embodied self still wanting me to be here, mm. despite all about me that you now know, that you didn't know five minutes ago. Yeah. And that I was sure, once you knew, you would want to leave. Mm. So how does, how does that work, though? In, so here you are confessing, which really in the whole embodied, the whole sense of this is how I feel about being my whole person, including the whole the shame piece and sharing with someone. How does listening and, and sharing that, how does that help to remove shame? Well, I think, um, you know, the, the whole notion of uh, removal uh, kind of conjures uh, this sense that uh, th there will come a point, you know, like six months from now, where shame will no longer be a thing for me, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I'm, you know, and, and, and we all know, like, that's just not the way it works. I mean, right. I, I, you know, there are, there are things about the way God has set up this whole thing that are confusing to me, right? Because if I were at the helm, if I'd made the world, uh, and if I'm going to send my son, I would have felt like, you know, once the whole crucifixion, resurrection thing happens, that we should be able to get people to where they really are perfect. Hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I'll just speak for myself, like, that's just not happening. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and what's so maddening at times for me is that, you know, you do, you, you, you feel like you grow and you make progress in certain areas of your life only to find someday where something that you thought you had taken care of years ago comes back around to really 
create problems for you. I mean, we know this is true with addiction in general. We know this is especially true with sexual addiction that our brains, you know, we, what we wish we could do would be to like somehow, you know, spiritually have some kind of neurosurgical procedure that would just ablate all the neural networks that represent my shame experience and my desire for sin. And then everything would be great. Yeah. Why not? And it, right. And the new heaven and earth would already be realized right here and now in my own lifetime. Mm-hmm. But it does appear, and, and I, you know, the one thing I suspect is that I think, A, I probably don't take myself and that I have been made by God nearly as seriously as he does, hmm. which means that the brokenness that exists in me as having been received from my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents all the way back to the first couple, I don't think I really get just how bad the problem is. And this gets back to some of our opening comments about like, eventually we do recognize that our sin is far worse than we know because we are really working and wanting to live into the joy of the good news only to discover over and over and over again that even though I'm working on this shame thing, I can't seem to completely get rid of it. Hmm. Hmm. And so... What we find is that we, as, as I tell patients, um, our, you know, growth in general, and particularly when we talk about spiritual growth, when we talk about working out our salvation, when we talk about putting on Christ, all those metaphors that St. Paul uses that are so beautiful and rich, in some respects, one of the ways that I, I tell patients that th- one of the things that this represents is it is a sense, what I'm doing is I'm learning to grow in my love of doing the work. Hmm. That's really what I'm doing. I can't use perfection as a benchmark. I can't use the benchmark of I'm more patient now than I was before. And that may be true, but if that's my benchmark, like tomorrow when I'm not patient, I'm going to wonder whatever happened to the growth. Right. Right. And this is where, and, and this is where Eva will continue to use shame, even as we are trying to assess how effectively we're working with shame, <laughs> right? And yeah. so it's tricky. Yeah. But I, but I will say this. I will say that um, it is entirely possible, and, it, and we are intended to grow in our capacity such that shame has less and less and less rule mm. over us, less of a voice within us, such that we are paying more and more attention to the voice of God that says to us what he said to Jesus at his baptism, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love more than you can imagine. Hmm. And the, the healing from shame, which I think is a lifelong process, is as much about practicing turning our attention moment by moment by moment to hearing and remembering God's voice saying to us, you're my daughter, whom I love, and in whom I'm well pleased. That's the beginning and end of the story. What I want you to do is to respond to that right now, even even in this very moment hmm. when something has happened about which you feel the most shame. Hmm. In that moment, what is it like for us to feel the hand of a 33-year-old Palestinian <laughs> on our shoulder who turns and says, I can't wait to see what we're going to do within the next five minutes. Yeah. And we could afford to have more of that in every 
domain of social interaction in our mm. culture. Ah, mm. oh, this has been so good. I just want to, I guess, just ask just one last question. Kurt, you, when you started sharing even your story in kind of that silly goofball island way, but of just with, you know, it's kind of almost as if you're conceived with shame bathing mm. you. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And here you are, 56, and your word for the year as potentially theme, whatever, adventure. Like, how how have you seen, in as short as you want to say or as long, but just like, how have you seen that show up in your life? Like, of just some of that joy and growth and that joy in mm-hmm. and, and removing the shame. Yeah. Um, the abridged version would be to say that um, I have three older brothers, uh, all of whom now have died from cancer. Mm. Um, the most recent death taking place uh, this past June, mm-hmm. uh, where my oldest brother died. And um, uh, now I'm in this strange place of being the only surviving member of my family of origin. But um, my brother's death uh, activated a, a, a bit of a cascade of conversations mm. um, that eventually all involved some things about my family of origin, about my parents and mm-hmm. other you know, other, other elements of my developmental years, some of which I haven't really thought much about. But one of the things that came out of some conversations that we had about my own growing up years, uh, you know, reflected to me by one of my surviving sisters-in-law who, in the course of conversation, went back and said, you know, because she and my, uh, one of my brothers had been married when I was quite young, and they were around and seeing kind of how my parents were parenting me. Now, all this is to say is that like, I, I had parents who loved Jesus and who loved me more than I deserved, and uh, many, many, many things about my life growing up were rich and full and good. Um, but there were, you know, but it wasn't perfect, and one of the ways it wasn't perfect is that I, you know, I had to, turns out I was, I, I lived a lot of life making sure that I wasn't making my dad angry mm. and wasn't mm. making my mom anxious. Mm. Not because they were angry and anxious all the time, but there were elements, you know, kind of coupled with my temperament in which... I was doing a lot of practicing of that, just making sure that if my dad might get angry, I'm just going to make sure that that doesn't happen. Because, you know, where I grew up, we didn't talk about emotion. We didn't, we, there was not much inquiry about this. This is one of the reasons why when I was in the mid- middle of my existential crises as a teenager, uh, you know, I wasn't having conversations in my own home about this because it was, there was too much risk of upsetting the apple cart about, mm. you know, how we were supposed to believe and think and so forth as Christians. Right. So what ended up happening was, you know, I, uh, my, my sister-in-law made a comment in, in the course of conversations after my brother's death, convers- you know, comment about how she noticed that some of the things that my parents did in raising me, that she and my brother didn't really, she, they, they were concerned. Not concerned like something dangerous was happening, but there were ways in which they thought that, you know, things were a little harsh for me. Mm. Which was really interesting. And because what I ended up, just, you know, in the course of this, you learned, oh my goodness, I've spent a lot of years managing other people's anger and anxiety as a way to manage my own stuff. Because at the end of the day, you know, shame is waiting for me. Like there's something, yeah. you know, something's going to be wrong with you mm-hmm. if you aren't managing this. And then, you know, I've been married for 32 years. And then as I turn it like it, it's, it, it, no, there's no other place where it's more evident than in my marriage where for 32 years, it turns out I've been working really hard to manage my wife's anger and anxiety. And by that, I don't mean that she, I mean, She's not angry or right. anxious in ways, but like this is the narrative that I'm spinning, right. and right. I have been spinning since I was, you know, be, since before I was six. Yeah. And so 
I use the word adventure because like I've spent the last four months having to practice pushing against shame even in my marriage where I'm like I'm worried that I'm going to be ashamed because I would have done something that's going to make my wife angry or anxious. This is a story that I tell. And of course, she's not thinking anything of the kind. Mm-hmm. But I'm making this up in my head. And I'm thinking like, my gosh, like I'm a, I'm a shrink. I've known like and like yeah. I'm in here. I am 56, like learning all this stuff. Yeah. And so not only that, but it also applies to how I do my work. I've got, you know, a couple of different things that I'm considering doing, you know, in the near future. Mm. Uh, so this whole practice yeah. of putting shame to death uh, has shown up in the course of discovering things that are true about my life and have been true that I've known to some degree, but not have, have not had to viscerally kind of take it in and do something with it until, you know, these events happen in my life. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, I I would say again, thanks be to God for the number of different ways in which he's come to find me in the middle of all this stuff. Hmm. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I am fortunate enough to uh, be, uh, to, to have friends with whom I'm in, you know, I, I, two guys that I meet with every Tuesday for prayer and confession. And I've got a spiritual director and I've got other people by whom I'm really deeply known and who've loved me very, very well, hmm. um, that, uh, have encouraged me to continue to like take steps forward and practice telling my wife things that are here before. Like right. I haven't told her because I'm afraid that I like at the, at the end of the day, things are not going to be good. Hmm. And, um, so I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll stop with that. But that, all that about adventure, I mean, coming into the new year, um, it, it's a, a great deal of adventure as I'm thinking about this new work I'm, having, I'm, I'm doing around this topic. So encouraging. Mm-hmm. And it, it just felt like the question needed to be asked because we kind of opened up some pages of your story and then you just beautifully taught and really pastored us, I feel like, as well as, you know, we talk from the neurobiological standpoint as well, but just really pastored us so well. And then I just wanted to, to bring it back down to just hear, okay, so where's that at? And again, just because the, the, the dream for this podcast is to open up real stories and real lives with the right now gospel. Just thanks for, mm. for modeling that mm. so beautifully. Mm. Uh, you're welcome. So yeah, will, you, will you come back again? <laughs> I would, I would share be a little delighted. bit more. Okay. Well, we I, mostly, mostly cause I just want to hear Steve talk. Yeah, <laughs> it's always, <laughs> we, I don't know if that got on the, the recording, but we just kept, you know, we just, his voice, it's just incredible. It's so right professional. On. So we will, well, we'll just, we'll let you have that pleasure and we will get pastored further in this whole concept of shame. And just, we're going to dive a little bit, continue to dive biblically. And, and then also just how can we some some of that, the healing of it, and, and how does that work, and what can it look like in communities of vulnerability, to which perhaps you just alluded. Uh, but for those of you listeners, our question of the week for this week for the next is, what's your biggest takeaway? We know you're convicted. We know something stood out to you. So can you please share it with us? We just would love to hear that. Um, additionally, uh, for those of you who don't know what Hole in My Heart Ministries does, which is the, the mothership of this podcast, we love coming. Matt and I actually do a training uh, coming to your church, and we, we do a training to help you walk alongside LGBT people without changing your theology and it's very heart driven and very gospel driven and um, we really enjoy doing those trainings so if that's something that your church is interested in just reach out to us at himhministries.com but for all of us we're gonna go just like journal for a while (laughs) but then we can dive right back in but for all of us here at the hole in my heart podcast we will see you next week